Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Dave Hastings is the president of the Fur Takers of America. I sat down with Dave and had a very straightforward iron sharpening iron type conversation about the ethics of trapping. Dave is probably the most educated individual when it comes to understanding the nuances of traps, the science behind trapping, and providing all of the information that one is looking for when engaging non-hunters and anti-hunters in a debate around trapping. Get your pen and paper out or get your notepad out on your cell phone because you're about to hear some truth bombs that you're going to want to sock away somewhere so that you can bring them to the forefront when you next engage on this thing that we love so much. Typically, the best part of the conversation happens right at the beginning. Um, so you, a thunderstorm, Rolling into rural, where are we? Rural where, Dave? 
I'm in, I'm in uh, western Nebraska, uh, bottom edge of the Sand Hills. I'm just 20 miles from the Colorado border and about 100 miles from Wyoming. So, I have yet to tick off Nebraska on my state list. So I'll have to come make a, a journey out to see you. Well, it is. Come on down. I think there's, there's plenty to be, there's plenty to be uh, sought after in Nebraska. Just don't tell anybody, okay? Because it, <laughs> we like to keep it a secret. We don't want to be overrun. So I heard there's some great turkey hunting in Nebraska. Quite a little bit. Um, I happen to live uh, on a, next to a recreation area, and we're just four hours from Denver. So we saw just under 2 million visitors at our lake last year. Great walleye fishing. Uh, sand beaches we're in the sand hills so we have sand beaches that rival uh just no tide but uh, it's a beautiful place and a beautiful state dave you are born and raised nebraskan yes lived in several places and uh but yes uh i'm a, I'm a nebraskan born and bred so well i as, as i said i typically jump into conversations because i love just you know jumping right in and I do a terrible job of introducing people. And I keep saying, Dave, Dave, Dave. <laughs> um, so Dave, why don't you introduce yourself to the millions of people that listen to this podcast? <laughs> well, hello, millions. Way to put the pressure on. My name is Dave Hastings. Uh, I, um, I live in Western Nebraska. I'm, I, I spent my life outdoors as often as possible, hunting, fishing, trapping. I'm currently president of the Fur Takers of America, and I find myself uh, here in this office far more than I am outside these days. But I guess at my age, that goes with the territory. But uh, that's who I am and what I do, I guess. Well, Dave, we're, we're so happy to have you on because this podcast, you may not have listened to a single episode of this podcast, but this podcast is known for iron sharpening iron type conversations. This isn't going to be a podcast that gets to know Dave Hastings but rather a, a pressing of what Dave Hastings believes in. And Good. what, uh, you know, we face as outdoorsmen day in and day out. Um, and, and really just understanding and educating people that listen to this to plant some seeds into the back of their brains so that when they are engaging non-hunters, they're engaging anti-hunters that typically use, you know, it, it, you know, I'd probably put money on the fact that trapping is in the top five things that we, we would get attacked about. That they can, you know, calmly, with a gentleman-type rhetoric, respond to say, no, actually, you know, some of the things that you're saying are untrue. Absolutely. And uh, I guess I was hoping that was where we were going, and I, I assume so. So you just say how you want to begin, and I'm, I'm ready to... to... Waltz. Well, Dave, I'll start by saying that trapping is probably the most cruel practice <laughs> that anyone could ever imagine undertaking uh, to take wildlife. That's true, right? <laughs> Ab absolutely not true. I, I, and I, 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 the irony is, is rich there. You know, it is ironic that it becomes the low-hanging fruit for those who would end the North American model because it has aspects of, that are hard to, for people to understand, particularly if you're not people of the land, uh, people who don't raise their own food, people that don't see wildlife regularly, sort of lose track of how all this happens. Uh, 
the word cruel is probably the target point there that I would start at. And of course, Very I think purpose, purposely used, by the way. Sure, sure. It, it, it becomes a, and it is purposely used by those who would, it would end what we do too. Uh, the hyperbole is tremendous. I, uh, in the New Mexico case, for example, on their Facebook page, they, they had a photo of a, of a trap and I haven't seen a trap like that except on the 1960s cartoons about the road. <laughs> uh, they don't exist. And so they use that kind of hyperbole to, to share their message. But, um, you know, in, in the last three or four decades, uh, I've been part of a committee that worked hard with the Association of Fish and Wildlife Agencies to create what we call best management practices for trapping. Um, millions of test nights, uh, uh, thousands, 43 states participated, $40 million. Uh, what we did is use the International Standards Organization to create uh, humane standards for trapping so that uh, this trap is humane, that trap is not. This trap is more practical, that trap is not. And in that study, uh, uh, when it's all done, we, we have created a, a great body of work that was recently published as a monograph by the Wildlife Society that allows uh, anyone who traps, whether it's protecting endangered species or wildlife biology or reintroduction or fur harvest or whatever the reason you might trap, um, you can select the tools that are most humane and acceptable by international standards. Um, it, it's hard to get science introduced into the topic. That's the part. We have the science. There's a ton of science. It just seems to be irrelevant when it comes to these kind of arguments and discussions. But um, I, I can prove it. I got the data. If anybody's interested, it's all out there, so to speak. So um, uh, it's very difficult, though, to enter a room uh, full of passion uh, by people who are what we might call true believers uh, and and discuss that because they don't believe you. We live in a polarized world and they assume that we're manipulating the data in order to get our point across. So it's very hard to uh, very hard to make headway in this black and white society. I don't mean that in terms of race. It simply means polarized opposite on how we feel about these things. But I, I really believe it's a division between people of the land and people not of the land because uh, people not of the land can be led to believe most anything about it. So. Mm -hmm. so, you know, one of the things that they talk about when it comes to being a cruel uh, technique, a cruel activity, uh, they, they typically hit a couple of points. So I want to try and let's sort of debunk a couple of these points. Uh, point number one is that once an animal gets put into these traps, and let's just use a conner bear for an example. And you may need to explain the difference between a conner bear and a foothold for the audience. Um, but once an animal gets its foot into a conner bear, that the animal's going to thrash around and is going to break its appendages and it's going to tear the skin and it's going to cause a lot of pain in that animal. Sure. Um, that's, uh, and it's, it, uh, it's a question of hyperbole. Uh, you can't capture an animal. Uh, well, let's start with the, we'll start with the definition. The conibear trap is a trap that's designed. It has rotating jaws. Uh, uh, the originator based it on his wife's egg beater, where you have two opposing steel things that come together. Uh, it's designed to be a killing trap. So the question is not is it is it causing any destruction. The question is, in a scale of time to death, did it meet humane parameters? Because mm -hmm. And those parameters for most animals, uh, for example, will be 120 seconds. And so if the conibear captures an animal 
strikes it behind the ears and below the throat as it's supposed to. And the animal is, uh, most animals, depending upon species, are, are, uh, are completely dead. Uh, biologically, physiologically speaking, in 30 seconds to or, or a little more. And that's probably five or six times over what it will take all of us to die. And so it's a humane death with that conibear. Um, sometimes the conibears are even underwater, which will accelerate that death. Um, certain conibears historically were not strong enough to cause that death to fall within the parameters. And most of the BMP testing that was done by the Fur Institute of Canada and what we've done here in the United States has indicated that certain types of traps that were marketed in the 40s and 50s are probably not, they're probably not strong enough to do what they need to do. The other type of trap that you mentioned is called the foothold trap. Yep. <clears throat> and the uh, anti-trappers love to call it a leg hold trap because somehow that sounds more aggressive, I guess. But it's designed to hold the animal by the foot on the tough tissue of the foot. And those foothold traps have these huge steel teeth, right? <laughs> Absolutely not. Just the opposite. Uh, most modern foothold traps have a wide, smooth jaw, and the jaws are offset from one another, so they don't ever completely come to close. Uh, the, the, I, as a trapper, if I have an animal's foot in my trap, even if I hated animals, I would want to min minimize the pain and discomfort because the more he is hurt, the more he fights, the greater the chance he's going to get away. So I need to hold him, and that's going to take a certain amount of pressure. But I don't want to, I don't want to break bones. I don't want to cut feet. I don't want to do all those things because that is counter to my goal. And I also respect the animal. I don't want to inflict any injury. It's interesting to note, for example, that the foothold trap has been used to do things like capture wolves and reintroduce them. Recently, Colorado uh, banned the use of the foothold trap and then used the foothold trap to go capture wolves to reintroduce them in Colorado. It's like, wait a minute, if it's a cruel device, why are you using that to reintroduce, um, to reintroduce species? River otter and uh, wolves and, and many, many, many species have been captured in these foothold traps. Um, sometimes there are minor injuries, but uh, usually not enough to inhibit the, the health and the welfare of the animal. And they're used to, <laughs> to reintroduce those animals into the wild. So uh, the hyperbole that we have around a trap um, is based on all of the culture, uh, cultural and social myths. I, I, I watched a movie not long ago. It was kind of a horror movie where this guy was running away from a mad killer in the woods. And wouldn't you know it, he accidentally stepped in a huge bear trap. You know, it's like, what? Okay, they haven't, there hasn't been a huge tooth bear trap in the continental United States for a century. They just don't exist anymore. But somehow the mythology of it seems to carry into the, the world. And so when you take a non-informed voter and you say trap, he saw that on that movie. It's a great big tooth thing with it's about two foot high, comes up to about a human's knee and, and might chop his leg off, you know. So, uh, again, we have the science, but so often the science doesn't get into that. Those are the two types of traps and, and how they work. But uh, we've got a lot of data to prove that they work humanely, uh, more humanely than any other way that animal will die. Talk about a lot of, I've, I've been in the past used the idea of triple swivels. Um, Explain that concept, and specifically, that's obviously tied to the footholds, right? Yes, yes. Um, it's funny because the trapping community has been working to tinker and improve traps since, since we, you know, the first leather snare yanked a rabbit in the air. 
But uh, during the 40s and 50s, uh, several manufacturers, one I would mention by the name, man by the name of Glenn Sterling, developed a trap with a large offset with a smooth jaw, with a center mounted base plate and swivel, and then three swivels in the chain. Um, a dog tied on a chain, for example, can twist that chain and pretty soon lose his, his movement to the point where he's almost tied up in a knot. But, uh, but uh, it, with good swiveling in the chain, the animal can spin and spin and spin and spin, and he continues to have the freedom of movement that's allowed by the original uh, piece of equipment. Those small improvements in traps were invented by trappers. The offset jaw, uh, controlling the power by which the jaw inserts on the foot of the animal, um, making sure that the, that the jaws are balanced in strength. All of those developments were created by trappers who had the animal's best interest in mind. And all those principles were tested during that best management practices testing that I mentioned. And all of them proved to improve animal welfare tremendously. So yeah, swiveling is important. Offset jaws are important. A balanced trap is important. The correct size trap for the correct animal is important. How it's staked, where it's located, under what circumstances it's used. An educated trapper can greatly make decisions and use uh, equipment that greatly improves the welfare of the animals. And so most of the things that we think of that are injury causing are not used today. So those nuances that are built into the trap, do they come as a result of policy and regulation? Or was it a, almost a, a Pittman-Robertson Act self-imposed <laughs> scenario through the trapping community on themselves? Uh, you know, uh, I think I can answer this, and it's, it's a wonderful question. Uh, I mentioned the trap manufacturer and inventor, Glenn Sterling. Uh, Glenn was frustrated because his traps were not, were, were holding only like 93% of the animals that he caught. And he was a perfectionist and that bothered him. So he went to work to redesign the trap so that it would hold a higher number and a higher number and a higher number. And Glenn's, uh, Glenn's uh, efforts not only hold them more effectively, but treat them more humanely. And of course, there's a correlation there. The more humanely he's treated, the less likely he is to, to fight as hard and to try to get away. So it's sort of a combination of practicality and concern. Uh, and when, when the, in 1998, when the European Union threatened to ban the import of furs from America, the, the U.S. signed a, a minute agreement with them that we would test our traps and use and recommend those that are humane. And ironically, it was the trappers' innovations that were all incorporated into those traps that proved to be humane so that the tests proved that they were. And so the answer to which one of those is yes, they were all part of it. And now we sort of have a, a Pittman-Robertson basically that says these are, these are the traps. Although remember, in, in the United States, every state has the sovereign power to regulate their own traps. So we don't have federal regulations about trapping. Each state makes its own. But most states have adopted the best management practices as, a, as an indicator, and some have uh, mandated them as an absolute necessity, and uh, that's how it all works. But So it's a combination of politics, but it began, and I repeat, from a trapper's innovation effort to make the traps a better tool. And uh, that's got, I mean, honestly, a government biologist is not the guy that's going to invent a better trap. It's the trapper that did it. So, Sure. You know, one of the other things that is leveled at us beyond being cruel and being inhumane, the next one is that, you know, you, you, you set out traps and you never check your traps. Um, mm -hmm. From a policy perspective, from a regulation perspective, 
I don't know. You, you are the four most expert on this. Are there states that don't have policies and regulations about trap checking, those that have trapping laws? What does that look like? Because I, you know, we'll, you know, it's so often to say, you know, if somebody says to me, when I trap, how often do you check your trap? I say, I check it every 24 hours. And I'm making the assumption that I'm bound by some law in my state that I have to check my trap line every 24 hours. Mm -hmm. Well, it's true. And uh, there are variances kind of based on motive. For example, uh, in the West where we have sheep herds that are absolutely being pounded by coyotes, lambing time, for example. Um, uh, in some of those Western states, uh, especially if the lethal snares are employed, the, the point is not to harvest humanely, the point is to save the sheep. And so under those circumstances, especially in killing snares, if the animal's killed in a short period of time, it really doesn't matter how many days go by before you check the trap, he's dead. Uh, a beaver trapped in a conibear is dead, he's underwater, he's dead. So, so the trap check times are that way. It, it's a very rare situation where a trapper would have a living working animal in a trap more time than would be necessary for him to manage his trap line. Uh, the problem is the minute you have an ultimatum, everybody checks traps every 24 hours, you've restricted certain types of trapping that isn't so much about fur, and what you're doing is actually sentencing a lot of other animals to death, if you follow me. And so there are, there are all kinds of nuances to how that works. Most trappers, under most circumstances, check their traps fairly regularly. Uh, as a trapper, if I have an animal in a conibear, the minute he's dead, there's a beginning of a deterioration of his fur. So the longer I wait to get to him, the higher the chance I have a valueless product when I'm done. And so the, the motive and the incentive is for me to get there. And I like to get there early in the morning. Most people like to try to check their traps as early as they can. Uh, in the West, because of the expanses of our country, we, we often have trap lines over hundreds of miles. And it's just not practical to get them all done in 24 hours. So every state has the power to determine what combination of regulation and necessity determines that. But the idea that an animal, I mean, I occasionally hear the animal rights people say that this animal languished in the trap for days and then died of thirst, doesn't happen. It doesn't okay, happen. So, so why doesn't that happen, Dave? How can, a, we, how, can we, how can we show that? How can we prove that that, that doesn't happen? Well, it's, it's in my worst interest as a trapper to let that happen. When an animal is struggling in a trap and he's uncomfortable, especially if he's, if he's in, in high stress, the, the value and the, the, the fur itself begins to diminish. No, no, no. So but, you, I, but, you, but you had, sorry for interrupting here. Yeah. I, I think it's more tied to this whole idea, as you just mentioned, about the lethal the lethal snares component of things, right? The one that you do not have to check every 24 hours. How do we know that it's humane? How do we know that that animal didn't struggle for 24 hours, 30 hours, 32 hours? We have, um, depending upon the device, there's been extensive testing on time to death parameters on those things. So in the killing situations, I can almost guarantee that if the trap meets those parameters as tested both in the first two to Canada and under the United States BMP, uh, he will die within that parameter. Now, there, there, you never say never. 
Correct. You know, Correct. There are always unusual circumstances, and we all minimize those as much as we possibly can. But I'm comfortable in saying that in those killing situations, uh, it, it is a very, very rare circumstance when an animal is in there any longer than it takes for him to die in an expedient fashion. The photo traps are a different story because they don't kill. So, uh, it, and most of my photo traps I check within 24 hours, but in the Western states, like I said, some go to 48. I have no incentive to set a trap and check it two weeks later. Uh, uh, it's, it's a disincentivized system. That's not in my best interest, not in animal's best interest. Not, you know, if, I'm, if I'm trapping for fur for profit, I, I really cut myself in, in the foot with that because it, the fur value diminishes the longer he's in stress. Um, not only that, if I have a trap that's got an animal in it, it's in my best interest to get the animal out of it and reset the trap so tomorrow I can catch another animal. So the idea that a fur trapper or even a damage control trapper would leave animals out there any longer than absolutely necessary is one of those hyperbolized arguments that the antis like to use to condemn us and, and it gets out of proportion as a consequence. So we have an example, very recent example, probably a month old, if I remember correctly, that uh, a state, New Mexico, just lost its ability to trap on public ground. Mm -hmm. uh, there is two exceptions. Number one, obviously the state wildlife agency can conduct trapping on public lands. The other is that Native Americans can conduct trapping exercises on public lands. And the whole impetus behind the thing that started that train coming down the train tracks eventually to the governor signing it was the idea that companion animals are being caught in traps on public lands. Mm -hmm. what, what are your thoughts there? Because to me, when I, when I read through that and when I thought about that, I'm like, why, number one, why would trappers be putting some sort of foothold trap, some sort of lethal snare in and around public walking areas, hiking areas kind of thing, right? Even within 100 feet of that area, it would be almost like it just didn't make any sense to me. So in my brain, it was maybe somebody locally in and around the urban rural interface trying to take a nuisance predator out. And unfortunately, a companion animal got taken. What, what were your thoughts there? Boy, it's a, uh, we have, we have less than our original hour. So <laughs> that's, it's going to be difficult for me to narrow down. But this particular example, uh, we know that for nine years, the National Wild Earth Guardians has been donating a lot of money to the local version there. Probably, my guess is over 125000 And even on the tax documents, the money is to end trapping in New Mexico. So it's a kind of bought and paid for political effort. Uh, the, one of the strategies that the Humane Society posts is uh, they, they publish these um, uh, user guides about how to, how to accomplish this. Uh, they have a 40-page one about how to accomplish the end of a, of a competitive hunting contest, for example. Uh, so, you, and so, and they have the steps that you go through. You get an article in the paper. You find a hyperbolized situation. In this case, is you find a dog that's been injured and you write letters to the editor. Uh, and so a dog was snared a couple of years ago near Correct. one of those urban areas. And what was the dog's name? Roxy, um, Roxy which became... Roxy, that's right, the Roxy so, Act. So, so they've... they've 
they've incorporated that into the whole process is now Roxy's Law. Roxy's and, Law, that's right. And the dog was in a snare, and the dog owner was incapable of opening the snare to get the dog out, and the dog died. I love my dog. My dog, Scout, I spent most of the afternoon with him in a tennis ball. I, I, that, that troubles me deeply that sure, something like that sure. happened. But on the other hand, that snare was set illegally mm. by a non-licensed trapper in a prohibited area. Mm. So if that becomes the impetus for banning trapping, it's the same as a drunk driver causing us to ban driving. Sure. You can't, you know, you can't hold all the honest and ethical trappers responsible for the activity of one. And he was, he, he had multiple violations and I think they had a poor search warrant. So anyway, they, they capitalized upon this thing. And, uh, you know, in the BMP studies, uh, uh, there were literally hundreds of thousands of trap nights. And there were in 99.95% of the time, no animals other than the target animals were captured. In that, I think there were something like 26 dogs that were captured. All of them were released uninjured, no veterinary help needed. So what I'm telling you is that in an extremely high percentage of the time, this is unlikely to occur. Again, it's about taking a circumstance that they know will move people. Jeez, it moves me. I love my dog. Right, exactly. And they hyperbolize it to the point that it, it is offered as if it were commonplace. And the answer and, and the thing of the question, and that just, it, it, that's, that's how it occurred. Um, uh, and it's, oh boy, it, 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 once it got into the politics, I, I, every one of those hearings was uh, um, practically a joke. The COVID thing had, for example, they're talking about banning an activity, the livestock industry, hunters, fishers, trappers, there was a huge coalition of folks that would completely change lifestyles in good portion of that whole state. And they allowed testimony one minute long that's right. By three people selected at random. And so I was like, what? That's, that's how, we, how we do this? Um, uh, it was, uh, everything about it was orchestrated and hyperbolized to accomplish this goal. Um, and you mentioned two or three of those things, one of them being that uh, the Native Americans would be allowed to do it for religious purposes. I, I don't want to get off your question. Maybe I no, should stop. No, no, no. I think you've, uh, you've answered it appropriately. The... the uh, the Conservation Officers Association in New Mexico has joined the coalition to oppose this law. In other words, the game wardens in New Mexico, their organization is opposing their own governor. That doesn't happen very often. But the reason that they're doing that is because they've been put in a circumstance where if they see a person trapping on public land, they have to stop him and say, are you a Native American? And are you practicing a religious practice? Wow. And do you have a card to prove that you're a Native American? And so the officers are saying that that violates our constitution. I want no part of that. Uh, so it was done to avoid the Native American contingencies objections to the process, but it created a larger one. And, and we're in the process of the, the uh, for takers of America, my organization, the National Trapper Association, the uh, and the New Mexico Trapper Association have filed suit against the state of New Mexico. So we're trying to bring some of that to bear, but uh, sure. uh, very frustrating. Uh, it, it's, uh, I, 
again, I could we could spend the rest of the evening yeah, on sure. the nuances involved. Well, Dave, one of the things that Blood Origins does is we are, I think we're one of the foremost storytellers about the truth, conveying the truth about hunting. And our thought, our approach, our rhetoric is not about staying in the closet and waiting to get punched in the nose, which is the typical position of hunters in our hunting community. And I would say I would lump trappers in the trapping community in there too. Leave us alone. Don't open the closet door. But if you do and you punch us, we're going to come tearing out of the closet and we're going to punch back. Good. Yep. I would not say yep. that's good. I would not say that's good. But what I would say is better is how do we avoid this in the next state? I.e., what message should we be thinking about putting out there? Because the bad apples are dictating our message. So. I will say this to you. I had no idea. And I'm a scientist. I have a PhD. I had no idea that you have science and data to back up how traps are humane and how they're not humane. That you've got all of this nuanced, you know, details tied to trapping. That's information that needs to be pushed out there. That's, you know, those are the types of things. That's the kind of story. That's the kind of narrative. That's the kind of rhetoric that needs to be well known within the hunting community so that when they, when somebody attacks, they're like, oh, no, 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 hold on. This paper said X, this paper said Y. This is what you should know. This is what you should know. But like me, 98% of the community doesn't know that. Doesn't know it. Absolutely. That's absolutely the truth. Uh, and, and I think there are two reasons for that. Uh, one would be uh, the character of a trapper um, is the opposite of a political advocate. Um, I think even, and, and I hunt a big game, I hunt, I fish, I archery, I, I do all that. So I, I travel in all those communities, but there is no more independent wildlife harvester in my mind than a trapper. Uh, he's solitary. Uh, it's not a group activity. Um, uh, and so they're by nature want no part of politics. They're also, we're looking at maybe, maybe 150,000 in the country, maybe two, maybe a quarter million if you stretch the definition of what it means to be a trapper. So we're looking at a very small, tiny uh, minority group of people. Now, what I believe that you're absolutely right. We have to be proactive. And what I think the Animal Rights Act recently have accomplished and it's clear that they're not out to stop trapping. They're out to end the North American model of wildlife conservation. They want us to stop managing wildlife the way we so successfully have for the last century. Mm -hmm. and, and trapping, I mean, the guidebooks show how to go about stopping trapping and do this or that. But clearly, uh, uh, wounding a deer with an arrow and tracking it down or a duck hunter in front of the blind wringing the neck of a goose or a duck, all those things are going to be in the crosshairs. Sure. And so to me, the proactive answer is both to deal with those numbers and finances. We're looking at uh, Humane Society's uh, bank account statements for tax purposes in 2018 was 800 million in the bank. And we're, we're you know, we're having a bake sale at our trapper convention. <laughs> <in Oregon. laughs> so, so to me, the answer is 
we are a shared community and we need to have a coalition. Sure. And we're seeing that happen all across the country. Uh, Congressional Sportsman's Caucus has been active with us. Sportsman's Alliance. Club International. Uh, uh, not only that, but also a Farm Bureau and livestock organizations and fishermen and everybody who believes in this North American model that has so wonderfully succeeded mm-hmm. comes together in one coalition. We will become unstoppable, but we can't do it, each of us, standing on our own battlefield and trying to wave our arms in the air. We need to be together and, and uh, forming those coalitions. I've seen some work in Oregon, uh, saddled uh, perched precariously between Washington and California, two of the most liberal states in our country. Oregon's getting pressure from all over. But the coalition of Oregon outdoorsmen has become a force to be reckoned with, both in terms of rhetoric and finance and politics. And uh, they're making their voices heard. And that's, that's our national model. I, and I think that's where we need to go. And I was so excited when I realized what this podcast was doing to talk to the hunting community out there. And we all have our our differences. If you're a bird dog sure. hunter, dogs got caught in a trap, you don't think you like trapping. If you chase coons with hounds, people, all the women and men that contribute in all these activities have to realize that by preserving the low-hanging fruit, they're protecting themselves. We are all under the gun on this. And so this, we need to collectively unify ourselves. So uh, we, we started a program a year ago called uh, 2020 Vision, which, oh my God, what a name for something that turned out to be, right? <laughs> but that's what it was about. We need to form these coalitions. We need yep. to get together with our, with our blood brothers, so to speak, people of the land, people who understand what this is about, and, uh, uh, and dispel some of those myths. Uh, and they're huge. Uh, Colorado contingency keeps saying that the vast majority of people oppose trapping. That's not true. Responsive management survey recently showed that less than a quarter of Americans oppose trapping. And if you ask the question right, that number gets cut in half too. So, so we have the data if we can just get the energy and the wherewithal and the funding and the political support to get that data out, out there. I, I, we can win. We, we have to. Uh, we owe it to our wildlife community that we saw successfully have been part of for so long. Well, I know that this is the beginning of a relationship between you and I and Blood Origins and Blood Origins platform was built uh, for the for the hunting community and for disseminating truth and disseminating information. And I know I've written down a bunch of things already that I can process in my brain in terms of we call them proofs and we call them truths. And just simple pieces of information that can plant seeds into the community and show non-hunters. Because really, our our project isn't built for hunters. Our project is built for the non-hunting majority to say, you don't know a hunter. You have a perception around a hunter. Come see what it, or listen and feel and understand and get to know hunters from all over the world and listen to their heart, number one. And then number two, you have a perception about what hunting is. Well, no, here's what hunting actually does for wildlife. This is what it does for people. This is what it impacts, how it impacts people all around the world. So know that you have our support. You have our platform uh, for anything in terms of messaging that you feel like you need to disseminate. Oh, that's, uh, that's, that's wonderful and it's so encouraging. And I, I you know, um, I, I, I'm so frustrated so often. I remember the, uh, 
Uh, never mind. I don't, I don't want to go off on a tangent. Where's the next it, battleground? Thank where's you. The next battle, where's the next battleground, Dave? Obviously, New Mexico was a big battleground. Where's the next one happening? Where would we, where's the legislative battleground going to be in 2022? You know, we had 21 states that had, had battles. Um, the question is not so much where's it going to be, as, as maybe which one won't. Uh, this is happening in all over. And, and it's, it comes in all forms and colors. Recently, the HSUS went on this bandwagon about coyote hunting contests. And there are some things that I think all hunters in general might object to with part of the way that some of those things are handled, but it's become the tool then. And it showed up in like 11 states. And so uh, uh, <laughs> uh, in trapping, I can tell you, uh, uh, HSUS has defined how to go about it. One of their first steps is to pick particular devices and attack that device. For example, they're going to go after the snare or this type of foothold or that type of conibear. That's one layer of what they're about in the grand scheme of things. So, uh, but again, it, no one is safe. Uh, uh, there is not a state in the country that is not apt to have some sort of legislation, if not limiting hunting and fishing directly and trapping uh, in the next in the next round of legislature. I dread I dread the January through May season because I'm zooming or I'm on a phone or I'm testifying or I'm writing and and that's all I get done. And ironically, that's all, I don't get to trap much. <laughs> so that's right. Like, that's you know, right. To, you stay engaged in this. I, I can't do what I love to do. So. Uh, uh, I, I basically just handle uh, damage jobs now, but uh, uh, when's the next one? It, it's everywhere. It's pervasive. Right. And, and I think we need to build this national uh, coalition of people who support the wildlife model, who, who know how wonderful it is for our outdoor world, because people of the land recognize how this works. And people who are not of the land are easily told that it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. And, and, uh, we just need to tell them, but it takes, when you talk about some kind of national campaign to spread the word, you're talking about multi-million dollar endeavors. And uh, uh, that's a lot of bake sales. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right. It's, it's amazing how it, the, the finances are, are mind boggling, right? And it's, it, it's almost the antithesis of, you know, their finances is all tied to comms and attacking comms, whilst ours is all tied to implementation on the ground and conservation and wildlife restoration and whatnot. And, you know, I think it's time for us to start thinking outside the box in terms of our comms and, you know, the finances that we get. And I'm always frustrated that you know, I engage in these social media battles day in and day out, and you see big celebrities just weighing in, and you're like, you have no idea what you're saying. But then in the same breath, I'm like, where the hell are my celebrities? Where are my celebrities coming on my bandwagon? Because I know you're out there, the Chris Pratt of the world, Justin Timberlake of the world. You guys are huge, and you're mm -hmm. hunters, but you're too scared to say that you're a hunter. Not Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt says he's a hunter. But Justin Timberlake, Justin Timberlake's a good old boy from Tennessee who loves to hunt. Yep. He will never be up. He will never stand up and say, I'm pro, I'm pro hunting. Probably won't even do it at the family dinner. You know, it's just something that we leave off the table because we don't want to. Right. Yep. Right. Now, and that has to end. It has to end. Yep. We just need our, we just need our cadre to say, you know, you know, once you get a couple, I think it's, it's almost like a, a sort of 
peer pressure type scenario, right? You get two, then you get five, then you get 10, and they just sort of snowballs from there. Uh, but look, I'm, I'm the eternal optimist. Um, we started a nonprofit to convey the truth about hunting during a pandemic and an administration change. So, you know, a lot of people would say I'm crazy, but we're also very passionate about what we do. Uh, the they, old metaphor from that old movie was you're cracked, but it lets a little light in for the rest of us. <laughs> yes, sir. Yes, sir. Well, look, Dave, I am going to, I think, you know, I'd love to have you back on when it comes to the legislative session next year so that people are hyper aware of, okay, yeah. here's what's happening across the country right now when it comes to trapping. Um, but I'm just, uh, you know, humbled to get to know you. Uh, thank you so much for just an iron sharpening iron conversation between two people who didn't know each other from a bar of soap <laughs> when we first started. So thank you. But I think we could cap together pretty well if we get around to doing that someday. We'll have to chase some grouse or something. We'll see. What's well, up. I would absolutely love that. I would absolutely love that. Well, I appreciate it, Dr. Kroger, because... Uh, uh, Dr. Kroger? What are you doing? Dr. Okay. Kroger, that's my... Only my <laughs> students call me Dr. Kroger. I'm sorry, I blew your cover. Is that oh what you're... Oh, my gosh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well... It's uh, but this is exactly I. I mean, frankly, if, uh, ten years ago, I never dreamed anyone would be talking to me on a podcast, uh, and interested in that point of view. And so, uh, we are seeing some daylight. And yes, sir. And I, I think I think we have a we have our differences. We got to sort them out. We have to learn how to tolerate each other better. But I I, I think we have the data on our side. I'm pretty excited about cooperating, and that'd be wonderful to get your help, help spread the word, help communicate, get all of our, our friends together and, and light a fire under us. We, yes, sir. We, need, we need a fire under our butts. And so it's time to get the matches ready. So, okay. Good. We'll do it. That's for sure. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening as always leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.